0: Could you take your Bibles, open up to the book of Titus, chapter 3. Now as we open up there, I know, I know that this message is not going to be that Christmassy. You know that, uh, boy, we need a Christmas message. But the truth of the matter is, every message is a Christmas message, actually. I was talking to some pastors last week and they said, they can't stand Christmas season because they have to come up with something new about Christmas. Man, I got. Maybe talk about the innkeeper or let's talk about the shepherd as they saw Jesus go to Bethlehem. You know, everything is back in the old story. And the truth of the matter is that story was given to give life, a new life that we are supposed to live in. And that's what every sermon's about, living in this new life. Because, you know, just thinking about it, I think sometimes we love nostalgia. You know, Jared said, hey, do you like these songs? Because they are great songs. But truthfully, I'd say 90% of the reason we sing them because of nostalgia. Because it makes me feel good. And we don't necessarily sing them because, boy, I love those words. It's because it makes us feel good. And I think Christmas makes us feel good because when you think of a little baby in a manger, it makes me feel good. But this, this baby's a man who's alive right now, I think. I think we've missed that so much. This man, Jesus, sees you right now. He's alive. And so, in a sense, if Christmas is just nostalgia, I don't, I don't know why we do it. But if Christmas is to inspire us to live better, to be different, to share this, this gift that was first given to us, then I think we have a real Christmas message. And that's what this one is going to be about. It's actually the last message, Jared, I decided to actually combine to because you'll see it's the same concept. So this will be the last message in Titus. Come back next Sunday if you want a really good Christmas message. I'll talk about the baby in the manger next Sunday. You'll like that. It'll be good. But let's bow in prayer. And let's, let's ask that the Spirit of God who is alive comes and fills us and opens our mind to who we should be in light of what Jesus did for us. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you, God, that we can remember. And in a way, Christmas brings you back to, brings me back to my grandmother, brings me back to being with my dad in a beautiful Christmas Eve service brings me back to uh, my sisters and brothers. All of us, in a way, are tied to this message. It's It's really a universal Christian church time when we remember. But help us also, God, to live what we remember, to make it a part of us. And so I'm asking that your Holy Spirit would inspire us, would fill us, convict us, all of that so we will be different because of Jesus coming to this earth and help us God to glorify Jesus, to really live for him and it's in his name we pray, amen. I want to ask this simple question, what do Sooners, Boomers, and Brides have in common? Probably have no idea. Sooners, I was looking it up, actually the Oklahoma Sooners are going to be one of the top four college football teams. And I was, what what is a Sooner? I don't know what a Sooner is, so I did some research on a Sooner. And a Sooner is back in 1887. Oklahoma was a territory that they wanted to give back to the Indian tribes. And they said, we're going to have this time where we're going to actually open up the Oklahoma Territory you line up on a line, and when a gunshot has gone off, you can go out and claim your land. They had flags. If you've ever seen Far and Away, they kind of depict it. And they would, they would take their wagons, and they would be, try to be the first ones to get a good piece of land that the government was giving away. Sooners are people that cheated. They actually went past the line before, and they hid in the bushes. And then when the gun went off, they jumped out, and they grabbed that flag, and they said, this is my land. And they stood on that land. And actually Oklahoma Sooners, it's a negative, but they kind of turned it into a positive to say those are the guys that really went out there and claimed the land first. That's what a Sooner is. A Boomer is after the tribes, the Indian tribes were given a chance, Boomers were other Americans that were invited in to take more of the Oklahoma Territory. And so I was thinking through that. Could you imagine being somebody given a free bit of land you take your family, you get them in a wagon, you're all excited, you go out, they, they shoot the gun, you find this perfect plot of land, maybe it has a river, a hilly area, some good fertile soil. I claim the land, I put my flag in there and it's mine. Now what? I mean, it's exciting to get that land and everything, and it's exciting to think about that that's my land. All right, now it's my land. Now what? Do I just sit there? Or do I start living? Do I start cultivating this land? Do I start making it grow? Or you could talk about a bride. Most American brides I know, even when they're little girls, they start thinking about that day, the wedding day. They think about the colors of their bridal party. Am I going to have aqua? No peach, no teal anymore. Teal? Mm-mm. Do I, what photographer do I get? Do I get a photographer that will take pictures by an old, broken-down barn? Because that's really cool. And do I get a cake that is a tiered cake or a smaller cake? Or do I do cupcakes? Do I go into a, uh, a nice reception hall or do I have it in my parents' backyard? And they think through this. And then they think about the honeymoon. Where do we go? Do we go to Cancun? My wife and I, we went up to the Sierra Nevada Mountains and the giant sequoia trees. Okay, so then you go on your honeymoon. You get married. You and your husband come back home into either your apartment or your house. Okay, now what? Actually, every movie... Romance seems to end at the wedding. At the end of the story, credits, now what? What do we do now? Okay, like the, like the Sooners and the Boomers and the Bride, we got what we wanted, now what do we do? Christianity's the same way. We, it seems like all we try to argue about in churches is salvation. Okay, we know what it is, now what? Now what? That's what this is about. The end of Titus is the now what? Let's read it, and then we'll go through it. It's actually, Jared, it's not going to be an hour that long. It's going to be a short sermon today. We'll see, right? (laughs) Ah, no more knocking. All right, let's read this. Titus chapter 3, verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. This word insist can also mean Affirm, proclaim, tell others this is true. I I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote, devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. For they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. That's what we're going to look at. It's not much. The title of this is Now What? So to uh, go forward, we have to go backward a little bit. The whole idea of this sermon series, it's Titus. It was written to the people on the island of Crete. So we talked about the idea is being on an island, and we're islanders. And so here's what we said about the islanders. So you go to the next slide. We said the islanders, there's three things that are true about the islander. Number one, the islander is chosen, called out. The idea is that God wanted you. We talked all about that the first first sermon in the series. Next couple things we talked about is that not only are we chosen, but we are instructed. We've been given leaders, elders, teachers to tell us about what our job is in this ecosystem on the island. We're given roles. Older women, younger women, older men, younger men. We are told who we are and what we are to do. We know. We're instructed. And we're instructed so we can glorify God. So not only are we chosen... Not only are, are we instructed, but last two weeks, we to me have talked about some of the deepest, most incredible things ever. We are anointed. That means the Spirit of God has been lavishly poured upon us for the purpose of giving us power to fulfill our role to glorify God. We've been given grace, undeserved favor by God. We've been given mercy, mercy that's been poured upon us and then it, it, it regenerates us and renews us. It's the it's resurrection life. This new life is the new power for me to fulfill my calling for the reason which I've been chosen. So we've been given these three things. Now what? It's kind of like winning the land in the Sooners or having your husband get married, or your wife get married in your home. You, now what? There's only two things. Two things. One you must do and one you must avoid. That's all. So, as an islander, you can either be devoted or divisive. It's your choice. Now what? Either be devoted or be divisive. Let's talk about what it means to be devoted. We're going to use verse 8 and really camp in there a while. Verse 8, the saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And so we jump in the middle of there, and it says to devote themselves, we use the word we need to be devoted disciples. We need to have devotions. We need to be always devoted. And devotion is a confu I'll be honest, it's a very confusing word. Because to me, we've turned it into a religious word that is rather dull. Have your devotions and be a good Christian. It's more than that. It's more than doing your morning devotions. It's more than lighting a candle and having your journal open. It's more than that. Devotion is the idea of giving yourself fully to something, being fully devoted to something. It's examining the truth of something and then being committed to that something. It's really, truthfully, it's traveling down the long and dangerous and treacherous road of the head to the heart. Some people call this the road less traveled. Not many people take it. They stay in the head, but they don't take the time to get to the heart. Devotion is allowing what's in your head to flow down into your heart, which controls your will. That's what devotion is. It's the long and dangerous 18 inches. In other words, devotion is... When I believe becomes me, that's when devotion, when you become a devoted person. Devotion is who I am. It's not something I do. Devotion is a journey, a very definite journey. And this journey, first and foremost, must start in the mind. It starts there. That's why he begins by saying, look, this saying, it's trustworthy. What I'm going to tell you is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. That word is affirm. I want you to think about it and then say, yes, I agree. My thoughts must affirm the truth before this starts taking place in my heart. What truth? What we already talked about. Do you really believe you're saved by grace? I mean, really? You didn't do anything to deserve this. Do you really believe you're a new person? Brand new. A devoted person lets that sink in and lets that kind of pour over them and say, wow, look. Go to 1 Timothy. Go back to uh, two books. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. This is, uh, I find this very interesting because it's the same. It's linked to the idea of insist on. And it talks about what, false teachers do it's talking about in verse 6 false teachers or certain people desire to be teachers of the law They they want to be in charge, they want to be teachers but they want to be teachers without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make their confident assertions true devotion is having confident assertions on what we do know false teachers make these false confident assertions on what they don't know Our objective is to know so we can stand confidently. So that confident assertion turns into careful consideration, which turns into conviction. And when I'm convicted, then I start living. But you have to allow it to form convictions. How do we do that? Really through meditation, through memorization, through time. That's why we have devotion. We don't have devotions just so we check off a list. We have devotions so we can eat the truth. I have have this book by Eugene Peterson which is called Eat This Book. And the idea is true devotional study is like a dog gnawing on a bone. The idea of meditation is where you just go, oh, this is good. Or you've probably heard the idea of a meditation is the idea of chewing the cud, where a cow will take out grass, put it in its stomach, take it out, put it in another stomach, take it out. The idea is chew on it. Let it sink in to you. Blessed is the man, someone who delights in the law of the Lord. He'll meditate on it day and night. And if he meditates on it day and night, he will become like a tree planted by streams of water. And so truthfully, devotion is the kind of meditation where it takes the words and it lets it become true. Yesterday, um, actually I have this friend that, oh, about a month ago. He said, man, I'm just not on fire for the Lord. I, just don't, I don't know how to get back on fire. I said, here's what we'll do. In the month of December, we'll take one psalm and one proverb and just kind of share it with each other. And yesterday was Psalm 16. Psalm 1611 says, at your right hand are is pleasures forevermore and in your presence is the fullness of joy i think sometimes we just run over that but if you let it cascade on you it says in your presence is the fullness of joy i want to be there i want that to be true of me and so what meditation does is chew on words where they become in you that's what devotion is all about. Watch how, uh, watch how this is where Paul begins in Ephesians with the gospel. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. If you want to know what the gospel is, I think Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10, is the most systematic treatment of the gospel, which is hinged on this idea of devotion. Think first and then become it. You'll see what I mean. There's three major movements in this passage. It begins by saying, "And you were dead in trespasses and sins." So Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 begins who you were. This is who you were. You have to let this sink in. You were dead. You once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now among the now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived. So not only were you like this, but all of us was, were part of this called depraved condition. It keeps going. It says, um, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then verse 4 gives a new movement. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even while we're dead in our trespasses, made us alive. So we were dead, but out of his love, second movement, we are alive. Think about that. Don't just, don't just go through that quickly. Think on that. Wow. We try to sing songs. Every, Jared will pick songs for us to not just sing them, but meditate on them. You know that one song, As I Ran My Hellbound Race, Indifferent to the Cost? That's what this is all about. So... Devotion begins with thinking. And then he keeps going and he says in verse 5, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us up with him in the heavenly places. So not only were we to pray, but now because he loved us, he put us up positionally with Christ. So we're different. We're not who we used to be. Why did he do this? So verse 7, so that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He did this to glorify himself. So, by eight, by grace you've been saved through faith. This isn't your doing, it's the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no man may boast. And then, verse 10 is the final movement for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So, he begins where we were. He says what happened to us, but he doesn't want us to stop there. He wants us to now be what we've been saved for, for good works. So you could say this. So Ephesians works from truth in your mind to actions that are realized in my life. So it begins, go to the next slide. So it begins with thoughts to affirm, and it ends with actions. And these actions are summed up in Titus as good works. But often when we hear good works, we usually think of that phrase as something that helps us be justified in the eyes of God. the NIV, I like how the NIV put it. The NIV says, now you should start doing what is good. Start doing what is good. Devote themselves to doing what is good. When you start to become what you believe, you start doing what is good. Why? Why do I start doing good works? Because, look at the end of verse 8, here's why we do good works because it is profitable. It is excellent. We we get in this big argument. I I hate this argument of good works. I I don't understand it. So I want to put it like this. Good works are always post-salvation. They're always talked about in post-salvation. And profitability always is post-salvation. If I ever confuse good works with pre-salvation that means I can earn merit or favor, then I've ruined the good works because the good works because of something I do to gain God's favor where he owes me. That's not what good works are. Good works are the result of the Spirit of God alive in my life. Pre-salvation works are always tainted with a little bit of pride. Like yeast, it puffs up. But post-salvation work, meaning when I really understand what he did for me and I know I'm saved, then I want to do for him. Those works are spirit-driven, and therefore they're good. I once heard the example, well, people like to say, well, I can't do anything that's good. Post-salvation you can, because it's God working through you. I once heard the thing saying, Imagine you have a little kid and he's uh, maybe one or two years old and he draws you a picture. And really, comparative to all of God's work or what you could draw, it's not good. But don't you tell your kid that's good? Why do you tell your kid that's good? Because it's it's given out of a different heart. It's given out of a heart of love and it is good to you. In the same way, we have this idea, well, none of my works are good. Post-salvation they are. Because they're to glorify Him. They're driven by the Spirit. They're profitable. What does that word profitable mean? Good works means that they build up. They strengthen. They make the church alive. They make this island teeming with life. These good works, again, are post salvation. I have to stress it because people keep, it bothers them that you ever talk about using good works. It's always post-salvation, but when you do good works after salvation, it's good for everybody. For me, for you, and for everybody. I love how the Westminster Confession puts it. It lists a number of reasons why we do good works. The profit that is gained from good works. Number one, go ahead and put it on there, number one, Good works manifest thankfulness. When I do good works, they are displaying just gratefulness that I'm saved. It's a sign I'm truly thankful for what He's done for me already. If you're overwhelmed by grace and mercy, you can't help but share the gift. You just can't because you're grateful. Two days ago, I was driving my car, and I forgot that there was snow on the ground, so I was driving a little bit different, and I, pull, I thought I could beat this car, pull out. Man, I slid in front of him. He had to put on his brakes. He's sliding, and I felt like, man, I should have gotten a car wreck, but I didn't. I'm like, thank you, God, I didn't get in the car wreck, and I'll drive better from now on. So my thankfulness causes me to do different things. The same way, I once was lost. I was wicked. I used to do terrible things, but he saved me. I will not do those anymore. Because I can't believe he saved me. See, so those good works aren't earning anything. It's because, man, you guys know what we got. I mean, honestly, do you know what we got? Do you? Then live it. I mean, this isn't a flashy sermon. This is just the truth. Don't make it an argument between, well, good works don't earn salvation. I know that. I'm talking post salvation. You should be thankful. they strengthen assurance. When good works flow out of you, it's a sign that God is in you. Have you ever loved somebody that you have no reason to love? They've been so mean to you, but for some reason God's spirit's alive in you so you just got to love them. It's confirmation that wow God is in me. You know one of the biggest one of the biggest things before I was saved, I would I would grit my teeth going to, work, going to church. I would just endure it. Like, oh man, I'm going to go. At the churches I used to go to, there was different kinds you could go to. I went to the one on Saturday night because it was only 20 minutes. I'd go 20 minutes, I'd get out of there, and I'd, whew, I paid my due. Phew! But what was really strange, after I got saved, I wanted to go. Like, I remember my friends would go, what are you, what are you doing? Well, I'm going to church. Why? I love it. I love celebrating with God's people. Yeah, but they sing these old, these old Christmas hymns. I still love them. I don't know what to tell you. I love them. Why? I don't know. And some, It's a sign that I'm different. Good works, doing good things. When you give to others without telling anybody else, and you go home alone in your house, you start realizing, man, I'm different than I used to be. It strengthens strengthens your assurance. It edifies the brethren. When you do good things, it edifies. It builds up. When Jared uses gifts and sings, people are, are blessed. When his wife uses your gifts and sings, people are really blessed. <laughs> when, <laughs> I'll tell you what. I'll be honest with you. On, on uh, that fire this past week, if, if you have kids in town, I had to bring my kids to the high school. And so they pretty much blocked off the main road, and you could only go there off of the, a back road. So you'd go off the back road, and there was that house aflame. It was aflame. You know, you could see smoke coming out. And in my heart, the first thing, you know what, you know what the darkness of the human heart says? Oh, I'm glad that's not me. Man, that'd be terrible, wouldn't it? Ooh, I'm glad... My house doesn't have that. And, so, and this is what went on in my mind. I'm just being honest with you with me. So I'm driving my kids, and my kids are like, do you know who lives there? I said, I don't know who lives there. And I pulled up to the high school, and they're like, man, that would be terrible. Yeah, it would be terrible. And Jasmine, who's very compassionate, says, oh, they lose everything. I'm like, yeah, you're right. They'll probably lose everything. And then we dropped them off, and I'm driving around. Usually what I do is I take my dog for a walk in the morning. I'm like, Chris, you going to go there? I don't want to, like, this is my argument. I don't want to go see what, how it's going. But, Chris, you're kind of the pastor of the church that's across the street from that fire. Aren't you going to go there? I don't want to go there, Chris. I mean, that's how I talk to myself. People are like, why doesn't he wave to me and he drive Because I'm yelling at myself. <laughs> so I'm driving down the street, and I'm like, but, Chris, you're you're preaching on doing good works. I know. But why am I going to do these? So I can be seen? But go there. All right. Chris, I'll go there. I yelled at myself. So I went there, and there was this fire, and the flames are coming up, and there's the family out in the cold, and the snow's falling on them, and all they have are blankets. And I get there, and Derek gets there, and a lot of people from our church get there, and we say, hey, let's bring you into the gym. Let's help you out. Then I get phone calls from all kind of people from the church. What can we do? Do you have their sizes? What's their name? We need to do something. I am telling you, when people, re- when when the Spirit of God prompts you, when people give, this family, Jared, when they when they were in there, weren't they just like, thank you, thank you, and thank you? And all I can say is, no, thank the Holy Spirit because me, I wouldn't do this. You know, like I got in arguments. I, had, I was black and blue, but it's we have. If we really have received everything, why don't we give back? a weird thing, being trapped in this body. But if the Spirit's in us and we respond, it edifies everybody. Also, it adorns the profession of the Gospel. I love that one. That means it makes the Gospel beautiful. What makes the Gospel beautiful? Someone that can say, I love you, or someone that just loves without saying it. And then the next one is that it stops the mouth of adversaries. Actually it said Jesus did you know Jesus gives unbelievers the right to examine us? He says they will they will know. They will know you are Christians by your love. Who are they? Non-Christians. They will know what? They will know you are mine by your love. So, he's given them a right to test us. He's in a sense given them a right to see if we're hypocrites or not. So when we do good works, it stops their mouths. Huh. One of the most incredible things, you remember back in 2004, the Christmas season, there was that tsunami in Indonesia. Massive tsunami. Ironically, one of the people I went to Moody Bible Institute with was living in this um, on one of the islands and it was it's primarily Islamic and he was not allowed he was not allowed to promulgate the gospel. So what he did is he just hired a uh, he basically hired a boat and he would get rice from and bring it to the poor people and he they kinda knew he was a Christian. But after the tsunami happened, most of the Islamic people moved out of this island and he stayed and they asked him, "Why did you stay?" Because he stayed with his boats and he kept helping with the rites, and he said, "Well, because I'm a Christian." And they said, "You can tell people that. You can start preaching that." So he was able to actually start a church in the island he wasn't allowed to before, because they saw that he did good works. He stopped the mouths. And then the final one is glorify God. Now that it is profitable to do good works, we bring glory to God, which is the goal of devotion. That's where when your mind hits your heart and your heart does action, you have completed the course of devotion. That's what devotion's all about. There's nothing worse than a person who claims Christ and has a mouth like a gutter. But there's nothing more beautiful than when a person who claims Christ is mature, calm, and strong, and good. Because there's very few of them in these days. True Christians are those people whose hearts are connected to their head. Which leads us to verse 9 through 11. The opposite side. You can be devoted or you can be divisive. Look at what 9 through 11 said. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies. Dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. You notice in verse 9, where is everything taking place? The head. problem with the divisive person is their head is not connected to their heart. It's a person who's not allowed the life of God to travel. It just stays stuck in the skull. It's just ideas. Christianity is not a person who's alive. It's ideas. And arguments. Listen to Romans fourteen ten. Romans fourteen ten is confused about the Christian who is always making problems and arguments and quarrels. Romans fourteen ten says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you why do you despise your brother? for we will all have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And so, the idea is, if you are divisive, that's not why you've been brought to the island. We are brought to the island. We're brought to the church to build it up, to make it a beautiful place, not to tear it down, not to rip it apart. In fact, the devoted person is on this road from beginning of thought to end of action. The divisive person, he's not on any road at all. It's like he's lost in a wilderness of his own. A wilderness he created and he's usually stubborn. And he's usually speculating and thinking and just wondering ideas all the time. These people love ideas. They like to cause confusion because they don't really want definite truth. Because definite truth forms convictions. And when you have convictions, you have to do something. So they, they hate the idea of confident assertion because then they'd have to live what they believe. It's easy to, you know, it's easy to speculate because it deflects attention off of truth. It's easy to tear down others. In fact, that's a problem with a lot of our last couple generations. Postmodernism is always rethinking what we've always assumed to be true. But the, one of the biggest reasons we rethink what we assume to be true is to tear it down. Let's just tear it down. It's called deconstructive ideas without building it back up. Destruction is so much easier than devotion. Destruction is so much easier and less courageous than devotion. Arguments, what are the arguments that erode? In verse 9, it talks about those kind of arguments that erode. And I found this not from the Westminster Confession, but from Chris Weeks's or Weeks' uh, go-ahead-and-hit-it, oh, his contemplations. Meaning I, this is over the years, last 20 to 23 years, these are the normal kind of arguments of people that really aren't contributing to the church, but boy, do they have ideas for the church. And these are the kind of people, what I'd say, dividers are the kind of people that major on minors. The minors of doctrine. The minors of law. A lot of times they love end times discussions. They'll spend their whole life on end times discussions. There's a lot of discussion on origins. The finer points of inspiration. The work of the Spirit. What, you know, This is when you really know when the Spirit's alive in you. You'll see these things manifest. He'll do this, he'll do that instead of just loving. There's a host of other things people major on that are very minor, and they divide. I've seen people on this side demand practice of their preferred preferences. They'll say it like this, I think every Christian should. I remember one, of the, one guy, we have, a lot of times we'll have a um, Super Bowl party here? Not allowed to call it Super Bowl. What are we supposed to call it? Big game gathering. And they'll say, I can't believe you're going to have a big game gathering in God's church with some of those advertisements. I just... Real Christians just wouldn't do that. And that's all they talked to me. They They wanted to have about four or five meetings with me about it. And it's almost like that was a sign that we were not part of the true church. Like, their preference was not to have it. Okay, then you don't have to come, but Don't make that the litmus test for what true Christianity is. We have all kinds of litmus tests. What kind of music? Pews or chairs? What time do we meet? What do we wear? I mean, there's weird litmus tests for what I would call preferred preferences. It's all they are. And they'll make divisions over that. Thinking their group who agrees with them is a little bit holier than those who don't. Then you have people who are obsessed with obscure teaching. Like there's some obscure teaching out there. When people get obsessed with it, ooh, it's dangerous. One of the biggest things, and Mark, you you know this, is like Christian Judaism. Should we adopt, you know, the Messianic, go back to all of the Old Testament rites and rituals of of the Jewish? Should we worship on Saturday? And it's all they think about. It's all they talk about. If you want to do that, fine, but don't make that who's godly and who's not. That's the problem. It's divisive. I've seen people be obsessed with blood moons, with how many demons you can be possessed with. I've seen people even have names for demons, like gluttony and laziness. and oh, That person has 127. It's all they ever talk about. I've seen people that talk about this whole idea of, practicing the presence of God, and, and are we the manifest sons of God, and they just go off obscure teachings, and that's all they think about. It can become very divisive. I've seen people validate novel philosophies and mysteries that they get outside of the church. Sometimes, here's one of the strangest things, sometimes we are quick to confirm strange teachings outside the church because we think we found something new or novel. I, I was raised Roman Catholic, and it's funny how many Protestants will tell me what Roman Catholics really believe. It's really weird. Well, I, you know, I went to a Catholic college and a Catholic university, and my grandmother and my grandfather, three generations were Catholic. Yeah, but I'm telling you, don't, you don't really know what they believe. I, I don't. I only lived in, we because we want to give the benefit of the doubt to some strange new teaching, so what we do is we almost sometimes saturate ourselves in weird teachings that have nothing to do with truth. Got to be very careful. And we have to be very careful of excluding people who are not like you. They don't, maybe don't dress like you. Maybe they don't act like you. But we form teams. All of these things are used to form teams. So my team is holier than your team. Actually, I heard a great definition of heresy. Heresy is when a person will not let go of their pet idea even to the point of division in the community. That's what a heresy is. Not just thinking a different thought, but it's being so stubborn on that thought that I'm causing people to take sides. So the question is, what are we supposed to do with someone like this? Do we be intimidated by them and go, man, they are smart. They've been reading a lot. They're smarter than me. Do we say we have to... We have to abandon everything we've known for two, you know, affirm for 2,000 years because there's new, new stuff out there. Do we do that? I think we do listen. However, if they, if they continue to divide, it says here in verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, just don't have anything more to do with him. The idea is avoid him. Just avoid him. This, is, this statement here isn't talking about if somebody's sinning and they won't repent of this sin. This is somebody who's just stirring up the vision. It's saying you, you don't necessarily discipline them like you do somebody who's sinning. Just avoid them. Take away their thunder. Let them stay lost in their wilderness alone. Over time, it says in verse 11, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he's self-condemned. The idea of self-condemned means it will prove itself out. The way you can prove out a heresy is it has no fruit. It has no fruit. But if it's true, it will have fruit. That's why you remember James and John, and they went before the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin said, if God's with them, we can't stop them. It's the same way with heresies. If God's with them, people will start seeing the truth in what they say, but if it is a divisive tool, you'll start seeing that they're kind of alone in their wilderness. The whole point is, we are here to build a good life on this island. Look at verse 12 through 15. So he ends the book by saying, When I send Artemis or Tycheus to you, do your best to come to me. Uh, Nicopolis. Lis. it's hard for me. For I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And in verse fourteen, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good work. Our people do good work, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So the idea is, let's do good work so we can be fruitful, so that we can multiply this island and it can grow. When um, Bill Rexford, Linda, and I were able to go to Israel, it was very interesting. Israel is an interesting place, and what God's been doing in Israel is fascinating. And there's a big discussion on Israel versus the Palestinians, and you've probably heard that. And a lot of politicians like to get involved because there's a lot of money. But if you go there to Israel, what's interesting is when Israel, uh, when the Jews started leaving Europe and coming to Israel in 1948, they started what are called kibbutzes, which is a community of people that wanted to take Israel, which was a desert land, and bring irrigation and fruit to it. And they wanted to build up Israel for the people of Israel. Also during that time, there's a lot of stuff going on around that where the Arab nations didn't want Israel there. And there was a group of what really are um, nomadic people living in the area today. They call themselves the Palestinians. But what's interesting is the Palestinians were more independent, kind of wandering around. They weren't building community. And over the years, Israel started building, building industries, farms through the kibbutzes. And the Palestinians kind of stayed the same way. They weren't building. They were just wandering. But they don't build a society that way. And what's happened now, which is, you know, 50 years or 60 years later, Israel's built something. But the Palestinians get pretty upset about it. Even though a lot of the Palestinians, they'll send them over to Israel to work, but then they'll come back and complain that they don't have what Israel has and Israel's making them poor. They could have done that. I mean, I'm I'm kind of generalizing, but it's sort of the same thing. There are some churches that are built to criticize other churches, and often they remain small. Often they have a strange pet doctrine. Often they're always complaining about how everybody's selling themselves to the spirit of the world. Instead of building from within, they're always looking out and dividing. Where our church, we're supposed to be people that we want to use our good works to build so people will be attracted to the gospel. We are to major in the major things. We are to be overwhelmed by the major things. Salvation, that I'm saved by faith alone. That should so compel us that we have to tell other people. We have to use our gifts. We have different gifts. We've got music gifts. We've got creative gifts. We have mercy gifts. We are to use those gifts to be a blessing, a lighthouse to people here. So they're drawn, and this is a fruitful place. The more we divide, that's not why we're here. We are here to build each other up, to be one. And so people will know we are Christians by our love. That's what the island is all about. That's why you have been called. That's why you've been anointed, to do good works. So people will be drawn to a person who was born in a manger and is alive today. See how this was a Christian message? See that? I mean, a Christmas message? Went right to it. So think about that. Are you using what God has given you? Are you? Have you allowed truth to travel from your head to your heart? Or do you just get lost in your head? Think about it.